This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Those of us in the innovation space in development and humanitarian aid often talk about making sure that what we do is market-driven. Not only should following this path provide the best solution to those who are interested in using your product or service, it should also create a clear roadmap to sustainability. Because, after all, if you've created a solution with such value that the demand not only sustains your organization, but allows you to continue to refine and grow and take risks, or, in one word, thrive, you're doing something right. This relentless pursuit of providing a product of consistent high value is the passion that drives my guest for the 113th episode of the Terms of Reference podcast. Chris Robert is the founder of Dubility which produces SurveyCTO, an electronic data collection platform used worldwide by leading researchers and evaluation professionals. Chris has literally seen and done it all as a technologist, an entrepreneur, an economist, a researcher, and a lecturer. He's been a technology guru before anyone knew what the internet was, or would become, a deep field researcher in India, and a Harvard professor. I spoke with Chris in Cambridge. Hello, Chris. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. It is June in the year of 2016 when you and I are talking. Where are you sitting? I'm actually sitting in the most quiet place I could imagine for this discussion, which is uh, overlooking the woods of the Academy of Arts and Sciences here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So a very sort of serene setting. It sounds idyllic. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic. You are the founder of a company called Dubility. Um, the flagship project or the flagship product of Dubility is SurveyCTO. Why don't we start uh, by you just telling us about that organization, you know, why you founded it, why it was important to get it off the ground, and what you guys are doing these days. Sure. Uh, thanks. So, so I guess I'll, I'll go back to early 2011. I was uh, working, I was a PhD student at the time, and I was working on a large-scale impact evaluation of microfinance in South India. And I realized that we needed to switch from paper-based data collection to digital data collection. We were doing a huge amount of data collection. And, you know, when there are squirrels eating and nesting in your survey forms, when you're getting something like 12% of household ID numbers wrong on average because, and you don't even know which households were interviewed, or you know you see your your team hauling massive rice sacks full of interview booklets up and down stairs and onto rickshaws and onto motorbikes, and RAs are having to stuff them in the suitcases and haul them onto crowded trains to get them to a data entry facility in another city. You, you kind of know that it's time for, for something better. And, um, you know, what I found at the time was that there were some very promising digital technologies. But they were all a bit too complicated, a bit too expensive, maybe a bit too unreliable. And sort of the worst issue was that nothing seemed affordable, reliable, and powerful enough to meet our needs, but also accessible enough that you know, our very, very capable and hardworking field team could manage it on their own. So I could sort of help them. I could set up, you know, for example, set up a server to, you know, receive and aggregate data. But that, that was kind of a non-starter for the, for the field team. And so, you know, I realized that there was, a, there was a real gap here. There was a real need. There was a great open source platform, Open Data Kit, which I know Andy Duflo at uh, IPA has mentioned on a, a prior episode. And you know, a lot of people around the world have benefited from. And that open source platform was really incredibly promising. And 
you know, I saw that there might be an opportunity to build something on top of that open source platform that would that would sort of increase its reach and allow it to be accessible by a wider range of users and sort of empower field teams in particular uh, to use this kind of technology for themselves rather than needing, you know, sort of IT consultants or, you know, fancy, well, any kind of uh, uh, consultants to manage things for them. So, so it's been so, so that became started there in, in my own uh, project. Uh, it's still being used there, the project, you know, evaluating the impact of microfinance turns out to be a, a long, complicated business. Uh, so we're still working on it today. But, um, you know, since then, Survey CTO, which came out of that, has been used in, in thousands of projects, millions of interviews, facility inspections, and so on in, in well over 50 countries. And, and this sort of fills my heart with joy and, uh, you know, is what gets me out of bed in the morning and what gave rise to uh, Dubility, which is the, the company that I formed to develop and sustain CTO. Before we go down the path of what Dubility is looking forward to in the future, you're, you're sitting there in South India, you're working on a microfinance project. Are you just the lucky individual of having the right skills, the right knowledge, the, you know, the ability to see the, the opportunity? I guess the better question is, you know, as somebody who's running a pro, you know project manager of a, of a large scale evaluation, most of us wouldn't look up and say, "Hey, how can I throw a whole development task on my plate?" Because I've got time to do that. What was that process like for you? So it's a good question. It's highly idiosyncratic. I think it's a it's a convergence of uh, a number of different threads in my own life. I I grew up. I started with a Commodore VIC-20 and uh, graduated to an Apple II computer, and I grew up uh, writing code. And it's, it's like another language for me. It's, a, it's, a, it's very natural. I, I look at you know, mu- musicians who, who learn music uh, very, very early in life, and they, they, uh, it's a very natural thing for them. That's sort of how, how code and technology was for me. And, and so I spent the whole first part of my life immersed in technology involved in the technology business uh, uh, well before I graduated high school. And so I have a deep connection with technology, but I'd left it for over a decade because I wanted to contribute to the world in what I thought would be uh, more socially powerful ways. And so, you know, I went off and, you know, I taught English in Nepal as one does, and I uh, volunteered on development projects. And, and then I ended up studying and uh, getting three degrees in public policy and economics. And it was only at the very end of my studies and my my own research when I realized how much I missed building things and things that lots of people could derive benefit from. So it was really, it was a bit sort of looking at the academic job market and my prospects as an economist and a, a public policy expert and thinking about what my life looked like and realizing that I was stuck using really lousy technology for my own research, and I was seeing people all around me stuck, really hamstrung by the technology they were using. And it was really this realization that, hey, wait, I kind of have this background in technology. Maybe I can find a way to combine my expertise in technology with my sort of newfound interests in the development sector and in social welfare some of those things. So it was a highly, highly idiosyncratic convergence of different things that, that sort of led me to realize, hey, instead of going on the academic job market, what I really need to do is start a company. 
And did you start that company during, you said that you did it during the microfinance project. So that's what I'm, I guess my question is, were you burning the midnight oil to get sort of the prototype, your beta out and, and get it running? Or was it paid for by the grant that you were on or the, the project that you were on? Or how did that confluence of things sort of happen so that survey CTO could be born? So there was lots of burning of midnight oil. There was uh, lots of just personal experimentation on my part. I have a phenomenal ability to uh, seeming knack for uh, doing things without any external funding or approval. And so uh, uh, this was was uh, like many other things that I do where, you know, essentially it was just me sort of experimenting, trying to see what could work. Uh, my wife uh, was very, very supportive and we we put you know, ultimately a fair amount of our own personal savings into developing the first version and, and rolling that out. Uh, at the same time, I graduated from my PhD program. I started doing some teaching, which I loved at the uh, Kennedy School. And I loved the teaching and the teaching was wonderful because it also gave me revenue that I could then feed into uh, development of CTO. And so there was a there was a period where essentially I was, my day job was teaching and advising students. And then I was taking all of that money and my night job was building up the infrastructure for Dubility and for Survey CTO. So, you know, one of the things that we, we, we like to talk about in this particular thread on the podcast is how does innovation happen? And what I'm hearing is, you know, it's, it's a classic, you know, you've got the garage, you know, <laughs> basically you invested in yourself, you invested in your idea and the company was born from there. Well, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because how innovation happens, in some sense, how it started, I guess I, I've been thinking a lot recently, you know, listening actually to, to some of the other TOR episodes and conversations here. There's a HumeTech uh, 2016 Humanitarian Technology Conference going on right now, and myself and colleagues have been participating this week and had lots of interesting conversations. And you know, how innovation happens in the development space in particular is, uh, you know, something that's, uh, that, that comes up a lot in this sort of ICT for D space. And, you know, it might be in part because of my economics training, but, you know, to me, incentives really matter. And innovation, you know, however CTO got started, like the way in which innovation happens now day to day for our company is, you know, we set this up as a for-profit company. I'd definitely be interested to talk more about how that decision was made and the merits of sort of for-profit or donor-funder, not-for-profit. But in terms of innovation, you know, this sets up the circumstances where innovation is just completely a, a, a survival thing. You know, we live or die by revenue. Digital data collection in particular is becoming an incredibly crowded space. One of the speakers at HumeTech yesterday uh, bemoaned the fact that there were something like 46 digital data collection platforms <laughs> sure, yeah. that you know they were they were having to uh, consider. And you know, for us, it's not purely a private sector. Oh, we're free market people. Market pressure is a great thing, sort of thing. Our social mission requires that we make it easy for people to drop us as soon as they have a better option, because we honestly don't want people using our software if they're better served by some alternative. And if we can reduce prices or even give things away for free, then we do it, again, because of our social mission. And so, you know, the market pressures then on us to innovate become incredibly intense and, and unrelenting. We constantly either innovate or we die. And it really, really 
keeps us on our toes. I mean, it may become deeply uncomfortable at times, uh, but I think it's an incredibly healthy thing. And it and it creates the incentives for innovation to to happen, not just once, but but continuously. So take us to that. Why did you choose the for-profit model in a in a decidedly nonprofit world? That can be a pretty touchy subject for for some people. Well, you know, it is. And, you know, we see, you know, I, I could tell in some of the conversations yesterday we were having with people in this humanitarian space that it made them uncomfortable that we're a, a, a for-profit company. And, you know, the reality of it is, is I, I make less money today with a PhD from Harvard and a wealth of experience than I did when I was 18 years old. And it's because I made a conscious choice not to follow the the sort of path that's most personally profitable. And so, so I'm very much a nonprofit guy at heart, and and I understand. And when I started Dubility, I my first instinct was to to start as a nonprofit. But you know, when I looked at how poorly the development sector had been served by technology, and I looked at the millions and millions and millions of dollars that have been spent uh, by donors and by various development organizations, sort of building their own, you know, open source solutions, you know, building their own digital data collection solutions. For example, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's maybe not nice of me to call them out, but the World Bank, for example, has a, a pretty large effort developing digital data collection technology, literally millions of dollars. And, you know, when I look at what, what's come of all that, it, it wasn't good enough and it, it wasn't reliable enough. It wasn't accessible enough. And so when I thought about what was going on, I came to the conclusion that donor-funded technology is just not efficient and it's not sustainable. It's not efficient because it puts too much friction, too much distance between those who actually have needs and those who are building the solutions to those needs. You know, it's you, you have people satisfying donor requirements rather than satisfying real user requirements. And that's a, a major, major, major problem. And it's non-sustainable because this whole donor-funded model means that you know, you have this funding cycle. You might get this great grant and hire this great team of engineers, and maybe they maybe they develop something that's pretty great, and they have this wonderful pilot, and they have a great communications plan for how to, you know, and they open source it, they share it with all these people. But you know, the the reality is there's a there's a funding cycle. You know, that team is going to disperse. You know, the the grant ends. The you know, and uh, you you actually uh, I forget which episode it was on, but you. You once referenced, uh, said that technology solutions are like living, breathing organisms. And I sort of was so happy to hear you say that because that's exactly what they are. Uh, software development is hard. It's easy to build a prototype, but it, to build something that works 99.99% of the time and that scales and that keeps working 99.99% of the time in setting after setting uh, that's just a really hard business, and it requires that you build up a team, and you sustain that team over time. And that time, that team has the incentive to continually service users, to continually have the kind of empathy for users, so that if users have problems, you solve them. If you know there's a a way to do something that's backward compatible, and you know uh, honors all of the work that existing users have done, versus breaking compatibility and and sort of doing something in a new way, you you honor the work of your users. And so it's, it's really all about the incentives. And as much as I didn't want to be, you know, a for-profit company, I realized that, you know, we needed this constant pressure to, 
to innovate, to serve our users and to serve them better and directly. And that that was the only way to really get the, the technology that, that these people deserve. So veer off that pad for a few seconds ago, you, you mentioned that it's a crowded field. You've got 40, 50, maybe more competitors out there, probably a ton that you don't know about, lots of homegrown <laughs> solutions. Yes, that yes. You know, I Believe you me, yeah. I, I know yeah. that uh, there's any number of people just like yourself, right, who are sitting mm-hmm. in South India or Africa or, or Asia or wherever, you know, are like, ah, oh, you know, I, yeah. this stuff yeah. doesn't work, so I'm just going to build yeah. it myself. What are you doing to innovate, to break the mold, to stay ahead of the pack, to add value to, you know, as you say, or I guess you've quoted me, I'm not sure if I should be embarrassed or proud, but you know, to, to feed that living, breathing organism so that it continues to adding tremendous value. Well, I'll tell you that one of the things uh, that we've done, and it's all about choices. And I, I think, and, and again, it's about incentives, this, a lot of the field I consider to be sort of noise. So, so I, there are a lot of, for example, grant-funded projects that are doing all kinds of interesting things. You know, like I said, they're 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 going to go away. Those teams will, you know, their grants will end. They'll, you know, and there'll be times when they will have innovated. They will have come up with some good ideas. Maybe they will have even contributed some open source that will that will get picked up by other projects. So I'm not saying that there's no value that comes from those efforts, but I think in in terms of the solutions that are here to stay and that are here to be sustainable and to build something really durable and and something that really serves uh, people for a long time. I think that, you know, what we try to do is just make different choices. So one of the choices, for example, is even as a private business, you have a choice about what kind of revenue you you get. And one of the huge choices in development is do you take do you fund yourself primarily through services revenue? Or do you fund yourself primarily through, for example, user fees, monthly subscription, licensing fees, like, you know, something more like that that's directly tied to product or use of the product? And, you know, for better or for worse, you know, in, in the last three or four years, I've, I've had friends, I've had colleagues who have started uh, ventures in the development sector, and almost all of them have focused on services revenue and they have exploded. And it's been, you know, to be completely honest, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to take sometimes watching, you know, your colleagues starting these, you know, these companies that sort of explode in revenue and staff and they open field offices everywhere. And it's all very exciting. It's all very successful. They have, you know, huge communications teams pumping out case studies, glossy websites. It's, it's all fantastic. You know, I made a choice a long time ago that basically I wanted to focus on a product that where our users were not our army of consultants. Our users were actually the people who knew their needs best, which is, you know, the, the researchers, the monitoring and evaluation officers, the, the people working in the NGOs, the people working in the field teams. I wanted a solution that served them, not a solution that served you know, essentially our consulting army to serve them. And, it, and it's, a, it's just, it's a, it's a different model. But I think, you know, when we're serving users directly with a technology product, if something's, for example, hard to use, then what happens is that basically they lean on our, profe- our support team. They hit us with question after question. You know, everybody seems to want to do this and it's a little bit too hard. They get confused. They need to contact our support team we offer free support. And so, you know, that's costly for us. And so we have this direct incentive to 
how do we make this easy? How do we take every single support request that comes in from a user and turn that into an improvement in our online help, an improvement in the user interface of the product, some other way that we can essentially make it so that they don't need our help? And basically that, that, again, it's an incentive thing, but that's the only way. If we have our own army of consultants out there deploying our product on behalf of particular user needs, first of all, I don't think that's that scalable. Second of all, it's super expensive because consultants are super expensive. And third of all, it creates this, again, more friction, more distance between actual users and you know the, the people who are providing the technology uh, platform. So I think... We're a work in progress. You know, we're, we're a sort of small, scrappy organization. We think we've been real successful in terms of, of reaching a scale and helping, you know, thousands of projects around the world uh, collect better data. As the number of users grows, we get more ambitious about our social mission and, and we focus more on, for example, helping to systematically improve the quality of the data that all of our users are collecting and we think that socially that's, you know, starting to have a larger and larger impact. But, you know, as a business model, we'll have to see. I think that this is going to be successful. I think that, you know, our product will, you know, of the 46 options out there, it will better and better and better serve the needs of a larger and larger group of users. And so I, I think we'll do well. But, you know, ultimately, yeah, the market will, will decide. I'm going to ask a risky question here. And it's something that I've been an evangelist about for for some time now within our our little sector here is that that you know it's filled with really smart people right with lots yeah. of, with lots of degrees with lots of education <laughs> and as you said your colleagues who've I want to sort of dial it back to your lamentations about some colleagues and friends who've started consulting companies essentially service providing companies and they those smart people go out and try to solve the world are you at odds with that? Or are you ultimately, because, you know, in my heart, you know, I hear you ultimately fulfilling the ultimate consultant mantra that nobody wants to admit to themselves. We should work ourselves out of a, out of a job, right? And so, so do you, do you find yourself in those uncomfortable conversations with, with other people? Or do you find that, you know, you're, you can play side by side easily or are there real philosophical differences? Well, you know, I vary. I mean, these are very, very smart people. They're dedicated people. They're making a difference in, in their own way, in their own work. Absolutely. Uh, There's and, not, you know, one's not right and one's not wrong. It's just right, different right. models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're, they're very much different models. I think that if you look at development in general over the last 30 or 40 years, it, you know, by most metrics, by most measures, the development sector has not been tremendously uh, successful at achieving its aims. And I think that, you know, and that, that's probably, you know, putting it kindly. You are uh, an extraordinarily nice person. Yes. Well, so, well, but I mean, you know, I know a lot of these people. I've been one of these people. So I'm, I'm you know, fundamentally sympathetic to, but, but I think that when you look overall at the, you know, you step back and you look at the sector, you have to think, Look, there are really smart people trying really hard, and they're still, you know, they're still failing in many, many, many ways. And so you have to start to think that there's something systemic, there's something about the overall incentives, there's something just fundamentally wrong about how this is how this is working, where you have all of these talented people putting all of their energy, all of their talents in, and 
you know, what's coming out the other end is just, it's just not, I mean, it's just not good enough. It's not good enough for them. It's not good enough for the, the world. So I think, so I have a tendency to think that maybe there's something fundamentally that, that issue about putting yourself out of a job. I think that's a, that's an important thing. I think that people who derive their revenue from services, I think that there, there's a, there's a fundamental incentive problem there. But at the same time, I can acknowledge that we've done a bad job. I've been too extreme in the other direction. So I realize that, you know, for the longest time with survey CTO, you know, I wanted to keep the price as low as possible. You know, if someone said, Hey, will you, I, I need to figure out if I can use your product to, you know, solve this problem or that problem. You know, this, what my response wasn't exactly go away. I won't talk to you, but it was sort of tended in that direction because the, the model was very much the Ikea, the like build your own furniture, like do everything yourself. Like we're going to empower you here. You're on your own. Which is great for a hacker culture, but right. most people, especially in government services, so, are, so, not, are not a part of the hacker culture, right? Well, and so the thing is, our solution has been to try to make the product itself easier and easier and easier to use, build up the resources, the help resources, you know, but then, you know, say people don't want to read the help topics. And, and I get that. And so one of the things I've had to come to understand is that there are lots and lots of people who could succeed using our product if they had some kind of training, if they had some sort of capacity building. And my distrust and fear and opposition to services revenue and my my dedication to look we're going to we're going to be about scale we're going to be about our product living or dying on its own uh, without being propped up by services revenue I think that caused me to not recognize that there's a role for capacity building there's a role for training and obviously you know your listeners are going to think you know this is an obvious thing and yeah I mean it's it's maybe it is obvious so we're trying to you know, what we're trying to do now, we just launched a, a Dubility India subsidiary. And one of the things we're trying to do is, for example, this started in India, but we haven't seen take up nearly at the same levels in India as we have in, in other places. There are lots of projects in India using us, but the needs in India for, you know, and the scale of data collection in the public sector, in, uh, you know, uh, in the, the, by local NGOs at every level, there's just so much data and there's so much interest, growing interest in data-driven decisions. There's, there's enthusiasm about big data, all of these things. It all rests on being able to collect high-quality data efficiently and they can really benefit from survey CTO. And the fact is that they're just not today. And I think that you know, needing to have a sort of higher touch, a different way of interfacing, having some training options available, you know, maybe investing a bit more in the interactions to help people understand when our product is or isn't a good fit. I think that those are the kinds of things we're going to to work more, we're going to experiment with a bit more using this India subsidiary to understand how we can serve needs better, but, you know, all the same not get sucked into sustaining ourselves on services revenue and then, you know, sort of not improving the product because, you know, that would undermine our services business. Mm. And, and how have you solved for, again, another, another thing that I'm an evangelist about, the boring work, right? Because you just said it yourself. 
this is something that nobody wants to admit to themselves in our sector. And I, I apologize. This is becoming sort of a dual interview here. You're, you're, you're giving me a great soapbox. But the work of data collection is horrifically boring. Right? That yes. person or those people that you send out there, I don't care how sexy the tool is. I don't care what it is. Ultimately, you're on your seventh house or your 100th house that you're collecting data from. You're like, wow. This is yeah. not the exciting development. You know, okay, it gets no. sexy when you aggregate, when you get up to that big data level, when you get to the analysis <laughs> yes. part. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get to the infographics yeah. and oh my gosh, then we've got emojis, right? Yeah. But is there a way to solve for that? Is there a way to empower that person? Feedback mechanisms, feedback loops, in, in incentives that we don't, we, we don't, we're not aware of that you've been putting into Survey CTO or your process that, okay, we're not going to solve the boredom, but maybe you know, allows that person to feel like they're connected in a different way? So yeah, so definitely, I think that um, there are two different levels that I'll talk about how being really boring has been a challenge for us and, and what our approach is. So, so one is, like you said, at the sort of enumerator level. So, so the job of people who are going out and inspecting health facilities and filling out checklists or, you know, interviewing households uh, about, you know, their, you know, the minutia of their consumption or their financial well-being like, you know, this task is dreadful. And these are human beings who are doing this. And so, for example, you know, there's often we talk about fraud in these settings. We talk about people sitting under a tree filling out surveys. And that, that's <laughs> I'm a, glad that you said that. The banyan tree, everybody's sitting yeah, there just filling yeah. yeah. So that's a real issue. That happens. But I think a more subtle issue is that these are human beings. And so if, for example, they go and they do 10 interviews, and in those 10 interviews, that they ask a certain question and the answer is always the same. By the time they do the 11th interview, if they're a human, which they are, you know, they're going to think, look, I know the answer to this question. I, it's a disservice to this respondent, to this person I'm interviewing to waste their time asking them this question. I know the answer to. And so, you know, they're going to start answering questions um, essentially on behalf of the respondent. And then, you know, there's a, there's a, a, another sort of more subtle type of fraud, which is, you know, in our questionnaires in South India, for example, you could, there are certain questions like, for example, have you taken out a loan in the last 12 months? Okay. Now the respondent, they don't know that if they say yes to that question, a world of hurt is about to descend on them. They, they don't know that, <laughs> yet. but the enumerator knows this very, very well. They know that if somebody took out a loan in the last 12 months, we have another 34 questions about the interest rate, about who they took. They have, we're going to really delve into that, the, that loan or those loans that they've taken. And there's tremendous incentive for that enumerator. It's, a, you know, it's 110 degrees. They're in a hot. They're uncomfortable. They want to get out of there. There are a lot of reasons for them to nudge that respondent towards a no answer or even just answer no for the respondent. So there's lots of ways that data, when we look closely, data uh, gets corrupted. And, and so we've started building in systematic features in the survey CTO to, for example, you know, randomly audio record what's going on during interview. So, you know, you get the location of the interview. So if they're under a tree, you know that uh, with GPS position. If they're not doing an interview, you have these random audits that will tell you you know, what was going on, whether they were asking the questions at all, whether they were asking them appropriately, that kind of thing. If they don't know when they're being recorded and when they're not, they can't sort of behave, you know, only when they're being recorded. 
There's even, we've built in features to, to set speed limits. So you know how long they should take when they're asking certain questions. And so you build into the survey, you say, okay, the, the minimum time I think is 30 seconds. And so you can have the, the, the tool react in different ways if they're moving too quickly. We, we call it violating a speed limit. But you can quietly record audio once you see them violating a bunch of speed limits so that later you can kind of you know, hear what was happening. Uh, where, you know, were they just talking to a very fast respondent or were they not asking questions or uh, things like that? So there's lots of lots of data that we can collect and ways that we can help field teams set up incentive structures for monitoring that really can make a huge, huge difference in the quality of the data collected by these, these humans that are going out on doing this. But, but I wanted to step back, though, and talk about just the, 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 the fact that data collection in general is just as something to talk about. You know, I'm at this humanitarian technology conference. You know, how sexy is data collection? Not at all. You know, I mean, no, this yeah, is exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is yesterday's news. I mean, years ago, the ICT for D space was all excited about pilots with digital data collection. All, you know, there were a million pilots. There were studies on, you know, the advantages of digital versus paper, all of these kinds of things. Lots of excitement when when this was the bleeding edge. This is so far from the bleeding edge now. But, you know, and, and in fact, when I decided to start Dubility, one of the things I did is I listed something like 20 different ideas for ways technology could help in these kinds of settings and, and where I saw needs. This digital data collection space, SurveyCTO was literally the most boring of the, the ideas that I had for, for Dubility to start with. But it was the most clear need. The, the returns to investment seemed highest for me and for social, you know, socially. But the fact that it's perceived as boring, the fact that everybody loves big data and everyone wants to talk about these awesome visualizations and everything, it, it, it drives me insane that people, I, you know, I joke that we're the small data company. You know, it's, it's like we <laughs> like care, that. Nice. You know, we care about small data. Like well, if you have this fancy visualization and you're talking and I do some policy work, so I work on some projects with like policymakers in India and Pakistan about how to integrate evidence and data into their decision-making at the sort of uh, national and subnational levels. And, you know, th- these visualizations are great, but if that data isn't accurate, you really shouldn't be making decisions based right. on it. Absolutely. And, you know, and, but the thing is, is nobody, donors don't want to put money into this. It's not sexy enough. It's not interesting. It's not cutting edge. You know, this is about scale. This is about reliability. This is about like the interview by interview, like how do we collect data we can trust? That's something that not that many people really seem to care about. And so it's been a bit of a struggle getting sort of any kind of interest or enthusiasm, certainly from the, the sort of glitterati of, of the uh, development or de- development technology world, because, you know, this is all sort of old news, mobile data collection. Oh, how boring. Oh, how crowded a space. You know, but the data that people are using is really poor quality if you look at it closely. And, you know, we'll all be a whole lot better off if we can figure out how to how to make that better. So, yeah, so this boring thing is it's luckily it hasn't killed us. It hasn't killed the space in general, but uh, it's certainly come close. Yeah, I think that's a classic example of the boring thing being potentially one of the most important things, right? 
I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm fortunately my, my brain is failing me right now, but I'm sure we could go across any number of sectors and say, look, the most boring thing out there is the one that actually the whole rest of the system stands on. You know, yeah. it's no surprise to anyone listening to the show. You know, I've, I've been in, in the evaluation business for 12 years now myself, and I'm still befuddled to this day the amount of panache that is put behind, you know, we need more data, we need better data, we need to evaluate, we need meal, we need accountability, blah, blah, blah. And yet, you know, we'll walk up to a client here in 2016 and say, hey, can you just tell us how you collected data on your project? And they kind of look at us in deer and headlights and say, oh, well, yeah, we didn't, we didn't really budget for that. Or, you know, we had, <laughs> you know, we, we're not really sure the indicators were really hard to put together. And I'm like, so which is it? Is it really, really important or is it just lip service? It's a conundrum. Well, I really worry that we're settling into an equilibrium where donors demand data projects have to produce data they you know report out all these quarterly reports all kinds of things but nobody really seems to trust it and so basically everyone goes through the motions they collect all this data they report on it but then nobody really makes decisions based on that data and you I have think, just named you know, the elephant in the room it's still going with your gut yeah it is going with your gut and i mean you know it's actually you know I rail as an academic and as a sort of policy person, I rail against the going with your gut. But, you know, honestly, between us and I guess your listeners, the, the data is not good, then, you know, you should be going with your gut. You should be basing your decision on other things. You know, if the, if the data is wrong, then, you know, relying on that data for your decision making um, would be a mistake. And so, you know, so the question is, how do we get good data? And the problem is, you know, a lot of it, there's so much so for us, we've tried to market and we're, we're continuing to just because socially it's we, we just can't do anything differently is we're, we're, we're sort of focusing our company, our mission on this idea of data quality. And, you know, but what we what we recognize and what any business person will tell us is is, you know, going to kill us is that the people buying and using our product, the people on the front lines of collecting the data often they're not the ones who care about the quality of the data. So many people, for example, outsource their data collection. So they say, okay, I need this impact evaluation. I need IPA and JPAL, the, some of the others you've had on your uh, podcast. These people invest, in, invest hugely in high-quality data collection systems, but the vast majority of people outsource the vast majority, and certainly the public sector outsources. So they hire a local firm to go collect this data. And the local firm is the one actually collecting the data. And they also, in most cases, are making choices about the technology and about the way the technology is being used. And they tell their clients, the government agencies, look, we know what we're doing. We're the experts. Don't worry. We're going to give you good stuff. They collect a bunch of data, but there's no real incentive for them to invest in the quality of that data because the people who care about the quality of the data, they're so far removed. They're the donors. They're the, the decision maker who's ultimately going to receive the report. But they're so far from the people who are actually making the decisions on the front lines and even making the purchasing decisions about what technology do we use to collect the data. It's a huge disconnect and it's a huge fundamental problem to how, for example, we're trying to sell our technology in the field and to the people collecting data. And it's a little hard to see how you solve this problem because you need the people collecting the data to care 
Our job is to make it really easy, if you care, to collect higher quality data. But we can't really make it totally automated. We can't make it one click of a button and your data is high quality. You're going to have to to care and invest a bit in it. And we haven't quite figured out how to create the incentives for that to happen. Let me throw one more conundrum on your table then for you to discuss, and that's governments who are interested in this data or other large institutions by their very nature are put here to create stasis, right? They're here to create security, they're to create stability that you know, they, the citizenry rely upon them for that, right? Rules, regulations, stability in society. They have extraordinarily long decision-making cycles, funding cycles, and purchase cycles, right? Yeah, yeah. You have that literally diametrically opposed to the you know, yeah. fail-fast, yeah. constant evolution, oh my God, what's the next plug-in culture yeah. of technology? How do you deal with that? Go. Oh, um, very <laughs> carefully. Because, I, I you know, I mean, the easier question for the people who are listening is, okay, if I'm going to go to the government of India or even a municipality or a local government, they're going to say, look, we want to make a purchase decision that's going to serve us for the next five or 10 years. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah. As, a, as a company need to say, wait a second, this, yeah. this technology is going to evolve going back to that living, breathing thing, right? For the next, you know, it's going to evolve every week. So how do, yep. you, how do you juxtapose that? Well, I think actually, so this is at this humanitarian technology conference. One of the keynote speakers uh, yesterday was talking about how they can't be thinking about technology that's only used to respond to crises, because basically it's never going to work. You're never going to, what you need are basically technology solutions that are evolving, being funded, being improved in daily use in other settings, in non-crisis settings that can then be deployed and used effectively in crisis settings. And I think that, you know, this was a powerful point. And I think that, you know, for, for me, what I'm finding is that, you know, cracking this nut of how do we improve the quality of data and the quality of the technology that, for example, the public sector is using to collect huge amounts of data. So, for example, in India, it's, you know, that sales cycle for us, that process is very slow moving. Essentially, we couldn't hope to, to innovate and involve a platform if we were waiting around for government agencies and if we were trying to fund ourselves purely from those government agencies. So I think, you know, part of our strategy, you know, we've been very, very lucky that Innovations for Poverty Action, uh, Poverty Action Lab, Social Impact, uh, World Bank, uh, Clinton Health Access Initiative, lots and lots of organizations have adopted CTO. Uh, people who were on the front lines, who had control over data, who understood, who understand the value of quality data, who saw where technology could help. And, you know, these organizations have been, you know, they pay our user fees and in large numbers, and they're helping us to build and sustain a technology that now, you know, it maybe takes us 12 months to uh, I've had conversations, for example, with the Ministry of Rural Development in India. It might take us another 12 or 18 months to get through a process so that they can leverage our technology and certain uh, uh, data collection efforts in there in India. Um, but all that while, we're innovating, we're sustaining, we're building, and it's being funded through these other sectors. Initially, it was mostly sort of research, heavy research-based but there are more and more of these uh, large international NGOs and now local NGOs who who are helping, you know, effectively, you know, it, it's kind of like the Obama or Bernie Sanders, you know, the, 
to lots of little small donations. You know, it's our, our user fees are really low. We need lots of lots of people pay us these little user fees. And luckily, you know, as we scale, it adds up to, to something really meaningful. And yeah, but in, in terms of how we engage with those public sector agencies and how costly that is uh, for us to engage and how we can finance that and make that work from a, from a business perspective, we honestly haven't figured that out yet. Just a couple more questions for you. One tough one, a couple easy ones. What's the biggest disruptor happening right now for you in this space? You may have just described it yourself, but is there, you know, is there something that's come along in the data collection niche within our business that has just been holy smokes groundbreaking that either you've put into Survey CTO or you're excited to put into it? Well, I think that you know the move from paper to digital was huge, and I mean there there have been huge returns to that. Uh, I think mobile technology in general has been moving so quickly. The, the price point, the, the level of technology that you're getting for a cheaper and cheaper rate in developing country settings is just unbelievable. And so now you have these new like crowdsourced data collection type initiatives. These are very sexy. If you want to look at where the donors are looking to put their money now, it's these, it's these really sexy, you know, more crowdsourced, more direct, you know, sorts of technologies. So at this humanitarian technology conference, I went to a session, uh, there was a speaker, uh, Patrick Meyer, talking about drones, UAVs, and the, you know, uh, use of these, these new types of technology in humanitarian settings. And I went in super cynical and thinking, oh, this is this, you know, we're going to talk about five, 10 years out sort of stuff. But, you know, that that technology is moving so quickly, that I had to admit by the end of his talk that, wow, this is actually creating real social value today and not in a fanciful way and not in this like just only can be a pilot sort of way. So, so I think that disruptions in technology are moving incredibly quickly. I think the big thing that I'm looking out for and I'm, I'm hopeful for is this what will hopefully be a, a real disruption in how technology is funded in the development sector. I hope that we get away from this idea that software is free, that we get away from this idea that donors or that organizations need to keep reinventing the wheel. I hope that, that an ecosystem of sort of you know, professionally supported and maintained products comes about. And uh, I think that that will radically transform how technology is used all through the development sector. So much to chew on in this last 45 minutes that we've been talking. I can't, I can't even, you know, as with most of these conversations, I wish that we had three hours to talk here, but I'm, I'm aware that our listeners have a, you know, they've probably finished their walk right now. They've probably, <laughs> the, the dog is finished, you know, they're, or they're, they're at work now. But two more questions for you. Who do you pay attention to? Blogs, podcasts, uh, articles, events. Who are you paying attention to right now to, to stay informed and sort of get excited about what you're doing? Well, I have to admit, I'm a workaholic. I've always been a workaholic. I keep my head down. I grind my way forward. I try to produce as much value as I can every day. So even when I was a hardcore technologist uh, decades ago, I never read Wired. I never spent a lot of time keeping tabs on what's new. So I've been very lucky to be surrounded by colleagues and users who are tapped into uh, all of the latest thinking. I, I go to these uh, you know, conferences like this humanitarian technology conference where I'm confronted with, 
you know, all the coolest, you know, sort of movements or trends. And so they keep me plugged in to what's going on in the world. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, I can't uh, recommend, you know, that sort of great blog or, or Twitter feed that uh, I've discovered. No worries. A great network is always still, the, you know, one of the best sources of information. Then tell us, you know, you mentioned Patrick Meyer, who's also been a guest on this podcast, um, you know, the drones, the UAVs. Is there another technology or innovation out there that you're just super geeked out on right now that doesn't necessarily have to do with survey CTO? Again, I mean, I, I spend so much of my time with my, my head down and, uh, and, and I spend my time focused. I mean, you know, we talked about this boring thing. I, I spend my time really focused on the boring stuff. I actually have kind of an immune system response to the new sexy trends and and because everybody seems to want to focus on that stuff and and pay attention to it and so i i'm almost militant in kind of ignoring and tuning that stuff out and and focusing instead on the sort of slow boring business of uh creating social value and you know taking the things that maybe we know do work or can work and just you know getting the job done Chris, thank you so much for taking your time out to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 